My name is Alec Crawford, and this is Stay, a podcast about sustainability, technology, artificial intelligence, and how they impact you at home, at work, and around the world. I am discussing these topics with high-profile guests to give you important information that goes much deeper than other sources. Find out answers to questions like, can artificial intelligence save the planet? And how does ESG investing affect you? We can build a better, sustainable future together. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Stay Sustainable podcast. Our special guest today is Brian Potts, partner at Perkins Coie, founder times four, including founder of the Legal Mentor Network. So welcome, Brian. Yeah, thanks for having me. So normally I talk about your career first, but since you went to UC Berkeley Law for your master's, I have to ask you what your experience was there versus Vermont, for example. Uh, well, I, I went to law school in two of the most liberal places that exist, uh, Vermont and Berkeley. Uh, I'm from Kentucky originally, so uh, but neither place was home. But uh, there, there was a lot of overlap. Um, I would actually say Vermont uh, is the only law school that's rural, so uh, it is somewhat unique and pretty different than living in Berkeley. I did love Berkeley, though, the location, the the I mean, being on the hill and overlooking San Francisco is incredible and uh, just, you know, very international, et cetera. And obviously very high caliber of academics, much higher than Stanford. Yeah, I knew you were going to say that. You know, I, I looked up the 100 most famous people that went to Berkeley and number 16 is actually a lawyer, Maya Harris, who worked on Hillary Clinton's campaign. Number one is Chris Pine, who played Captain Kirk in the rebooted Star Trek movies, which I happen to like from 2009. And number two is Aaron Rodgers, who I'd like to welcome to the New York Jets as a fan. <laughs> now, wait a minute. Hold on. Are you saying you're surprised that a lawyer made the top 20? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. If you go look at uh, some schools, the top 50 are all TV stars. Ah, yeah. Well, I, I don't know what it says about Berkeley that Aaron Rodgers is that high, but I'll go with it. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your uh, career journey. What was your first job uh, when you graduated from Berkeley? So uh, I actually had a year in between Vermont and Berkeley, and uh, I've got somewhat famous, um, and actually the Legal Mentor Network uh, came about because uh, I was rejected by every uh, AMLAW 100 law firm out of Vermont Law School. And uh, a couple of years ago, I posted my rejection letter from Perkins Coie, which is framed on my wall. Uh, those listening can't see it, but Alec can. Uh, and so I posted a picture of it on LinkedIn, and it just said, law students, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Um, and, you know, a letter from 2002, a form rejection from the firm where I'm currently a partner, hit a nerve during COVID, and 5 million people saw it. And uh, that actually was the impetus of what has now become the Legal Mentor Network. So, a bit it's, it's been a bit of a wild ride but to answer your question I, I did get a job out of law school uh and i started at a firm in kentucky where i'm from in lexington kentucky for a year and then uh the deal was my now wife but uh, girlfriend at the time 
was from Wisconsin. And we sort of said, uh, I, I got her to go to Kentucky by agreeing that there'd be a two year maximum. If she hated it after two years, we'd be gone. And we made it 10 months. Wow. Yeah. I, I, I hear you. I hear you. Uh, and you also worked as a contributor at Forbes for a while. Uh, what did you like about that role? That was a, a really fun. I mean, I always wanted to be a law professor. When I came out of law school, I basically looked at my professors in law school, both Berkeley and Vermont, and was sort of like, wow, this is a great job. They're making, you know, mid six figures working nine months a year and studying and researching what they want. Uh, so I spent a lot of time writing and that eventually led me to being a contributor at Forbes on energy and environmental issues, uh, which was um, the main area of law I was practicing at the time. And uh, it was incredible. I mean, I could literally write, I mean, whatever I wanted without oversight and publish it on Forbes's website, which is pretty incredible. Um, so, I mean, obviously you only get those, uh, you know, they'll rein you in or take it down. Uh, but um, it was really cool to be able to influence how people think about in particular energy issues. And my sort of shtick was uh, environmental and energy law without the politics. So I focused on trying to be completely impartial about what I wanted or what the right outcome was and telling folks what the actual law was um, at a time at which, you know, there was the clean power plan and a lot of uh, stuff going on. And I had a hard time reading the press because it felt like every article was slanted one way or the other. Yeah, I think that's uh, it's a big problem out there. And that's actually part of why I do my blog, too. It's mostly about information and less about politics. Uh, you know, when people think about being a lawyer, they they hope for something exciting and sometimes end up in a really boring job. But it sounds like you have found a super exciting job at Perkins Gooey. So tell us more about what you do there. So I'm a litigator, mostly. Uh, I do big litigations it started in energy and environmental and so I, I still do about half or third of big energy litigations for example if uh utility wants to build a real long big transmission line you can imagine a lot of people don't like that and so uh i defend them um getting energy infrastructure built but then because of all that litigation i'd done i now also do other sort of big ticket litigation we're suing a New York investment bank for, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars over uh, uh, fraud, um, as an example. So I, uh, I've sort of broadened to litigation, but because I've started a few companies, I also interact with quite a few founders. It's sort of part of the founder mantra that you will always talk to other founders and try to help them. And so I end up uh, helping a lot of startups, although usually when they need financing work or any kind of legal work, I uh, get others involved in the firm. Yeah, it sounds awesome. And, and what's your favorite part of the job right now? It's, I, I gotta say, it's really nice being a partner in big law. Um, and it's, it, there's lots of reasons for that, but basically um, when you are, at or near the top of a case, you really get to decide what issues you want to work on, what 
um, you know, brief, you're going to edit, who's going to work on it with you. So you have a lot more autonomy, which is nice. Obviously the clients are always in charge, but, um, otherwise I've, I've really enjoyed, uh, being a partner at a law firm. And one of the things I talked to lots of young lawyers because of the legal mentor network. And one thing I try to remind, especially those associates who are, you know, fourth or fifth year out of law school, working in New York, haven't slept for a month, that there are places in big law where people actually like their job. Uh, and it is possible to be a partner in big law and actually enjoy what you do. Um, a lot of people forget that. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And of course, everyone has heard the story of the lawyer who used ChatGPT, which promptly made up some cases that didn't exist and eventually got the lawyers sanctioned back in uh, June. I've, I've seen some of the AI tools available at LexisNexis, which look pretty legit. Like, How should lawyers be using AI now, do you think? Um, AI is an incredible tool, uh, I, I think. Um, and I'm going to answer on my own behalf and not on my law firm's behalf here. Uh, I, I think of AI right now as a calculator for writing. It is way more efficient means of getting your thoughts on paper in a way that are readable and understandable. AI cannot and should not be used for fact checking. You need to still check the facts. You need to still make sure the thing that it spits out is true. However, you can significantly increase the efficiency of producing work product by using AI. And I don't think as a long-term strategy, ignoring it or just saying you can't use it is even feasible. Uh, a lot of law firms are trying to figure out what to do with it now. Perkins has uh, adopted a few AI tools, and so um, we've sort of leaned in. Uh, and, you know, that's there's risk to everything, but um, I do remember, I am old enough to remember back when you know, the TI-81 came out and, and and the Texas Instruments calculator back in high school. And everybody was like, we have to ban these from classes and otherwise no one's ever going to need to learn math again. And why should we learn math? And this is going to be a disaster. And you fast forward and turned out OK. Uh, so I feel like we're a little bit uh, in a similar situation with AI you can't ignore it. You have to use it. Uh, but you got to be careful and recognize its limitations. Yeah, that totally makes sense. You know, e the EU has started making some, obviously, rules about data privacy, and they're planning to roll out their AI rules or laws later this year. Now, in the U.S., are, do you think the current laws or, and voluntary guidelines are sufficient to regulate AI, or do you think we're going to see something more? I mean, again, I sort of like to look at history and uh, in the U.S. and honestly, a lot of places, less so in Europe, we often uh, adopt a new tech, use a new tech, wait until the new tech starts causing significant problems, and then Congress does something about it. And so I think, you know, that's likely to be a similar situation. There's gonna be some growing pains. You're gonna read more articles about people doing stupid things with AI. Um, but 
I do think eventually it will be regulated. I mean, it's kind of like social media and all these things that it takes a while for the government to catch up to technology. It just does. And that's likely to be very similar in this situation. Um, and, you know, and there's some good about that. Trying to figure out how to regulate it right now at the infancy of a technology is really difficult because you don't know how people are going to use it. You don't know how people are going to abuse it. Yeah, totally. What, what are some of the legal risks with AI you've been thinking about or other people may not be aware of yet? So uh, for the lawyers out there, there's there are quite a few risks. I mean, obviously, the risk that you already identified, which is Chad GPT spitting out a case that doesn't exist and then you uh, filing it with a court is a problem. Um, I think uh, w- one other thing that I've already encountered or, or heard about, I guess, in the legal world is uh, experts. So experts have to do expert reports. And um, you got to be careful because if you don't tell your expert, hey, don't use AI or at least limit their use of AI, you can have experts writing expert reports using AI in which they're supposed to be, you know, the uh, written by them and their opinion that they stand behind. And so, uh, you know, there's lots of ways that AI might be used either inappropriately or without disclosure um, that could cause problems. Now, on the flip side, there's incredibly useful (laughs) tools already with AI that are, you know, mind-blowing. Two or three of the ones I've already sort of used and and, uh, adopted are, um, I mean, significant time savings, And in some cases, I could see eliminating jobs or enormously cutting back on staffing on some cases. Now, could you share with us any of those uh, tools besides ChatGPT? Yeah. So, I mean, there are a number of them. Um, The ones that I've seen that are sort of the most interesting right now in no order of importance, but um, co-counsel which is by case text. So they just got, well, there, there's an announced deal where they got bought for 600 million by Thompson Reuters. And there's a reason for that. Uh, co-counsel is a tool that you can literally go to type in a question and it will answer it like in a research memo with case sites and everything. So it's sort of a, uh, it, instead of, well, and I wouldn't say instead of, I shouldn't say that, But at some point in the future, instead of having a first, second, third, or fourth year associate spend 20, 30, 40 hours researching a research question, like as a perfect example, can we appeal a decision if the government is the defendant and the government is not appealing? So uh, we had, I I know this this is a, we had a, somewhat senior associate researched that question, write a memo. And then it wasn't an easy answer in the court we were in. And then she put that exact question after she'd written the memo in co-counsel and it spit out the right answer in about 45 seconds, maybe 60. So how to use that? Obviously you can't just rely on it, but it is incredibly interesting. And at a minimum, fact checking or or checking associates work 
uh, as a double check is kind of a no-brainer use for it. But then also you're going to have in-house counsel who are going to eventually say, for some of the more minor research issues, why would I pay a firm to figure this out when I can go to co-counsel and just write the question and it spits it out? And if it's not an issue that's like game-changing, bet the company, huge issue, they might not care that co-counsel's only right 80, 90% of the time or whatever percentage it's right. So that's one of them. Um, on the brief drafting front, or which is more in my wheelhouse, there's a tool called ClearBrief that uh, plugs into Microsoft Word, and basically you can upload any document and click the ClearBrief button, and it will look through all the citations in the document and then look at public case law, compare the citations. In other words, like you say, a sentence, you cite a case, it will compare the sentence you wrote to the specific language in the case from pulling public cases and then give you a sort of one to five, it's green, you know, it's color coded, but how uh, accurate it thinks your citation is. Um, and then there's also a number of other tools in there to make it much easier to uh, cite check all your briefs, but then also um, effectively uh, add new citations. So you could upload a deposition transcript that's a thousand pages, write a sentence and say, find me a site. And it will go through that thousand pages and highlight the 10 or 20 places where it thinks uh, would be a good place for you to cite that you know assertion. So that one's also really exciting and cool. Um, and then the last one is not legal focused at all. Are you familiar with Jasper.ai? Yeah, I've, I've, I've seen Jasper. I'm not a big user, but I know what it does. Yeah, so I, I had the idea in all my free time that I should write a book, uh, a fiction novel, and I wanted to know whether I could just do it with AI. I already had that. I already have, I should say, the outline of what I wanted to say and what the story would be. Um, and so I did a bunch of research and found that Jasper was probably the best tool out there right now for writing a whole novel. And then I found out, yes, it could probably cut the time at least in by, a, you know, you could do it in a fifth of the time, I would estimate, but it's still a lot of time to write a book. So, um, but Jasper is a great tool if you want to write a blog post, if you want to SEO your website, if you want to write a marketing email, um, it will effectively do it for you. And it's, uh, you know, these tools are useful. They're going to get used. You can't just ignore them. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah. And this is why I'm concerned about opportunities for students graduating from law school in the next few years, right? They might really be limited due to AI taking over some of the scut work, you know, like you talked about summarizing thousand page documents and what advice do you have for people who are in law school now? You know, what should they do besides, you know, network like crazy with the legal mentor network? <laughs> yeah, I can tell them how to get. Well, first of all, if they want a job, they should go to legalmentornetwork.org and sign up on the Get Involved page and or just uh, I take meetings with anyone who uh, messages me and try to help them. I do a 30 minute spiel, but um, to answer your question, AI, I, I, and I worry about this, a lot of the law schools out there are basically banning the use of AI by their students. 
which is, in my opinion, personal opinion, and I teach, so don't attribute this to any of the places I teach. That's a terrible idea. I think law students should be leaning into AI, learning AI, because the ones that know how to use it are going to be the ones who are most likely to have jobs as if AI does, as a lot of people suspect, start taking over jobs. So I think um, there's a disconnect between what's going on in academia, and I understand the concerns there. Obviously, it's a little bit worrisome when you're like, wait a minute, who wrote this exam response? But on the other hand, law schools are uh, teaching and grading on a scale compared to everyone else in the class. So if there's 90 students in the class and you tell them all they can use AI in any fashion they want for the exam, you're still going to grade them on a curve. So the fact that their exams are going to be a lot better written, um, yeah, you'd rather them be able to write it. But uh, it it also, I think, if you ignore AI, it's going to be to your detriment. Yep. And um, h- how do you think, I mean, obviously we we're talking about Congress before and how they never act until there's a crisis, but, you know, if we could magically wave a, a wand over Congress to and, and help prepare for the increasing influence of AI on society, well, what should they do? What should our advice be to Congress? Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I'm not sure. I think I, I always worry, you know, and this is, uh, a little bit out there, but, uh, you know, a lot of people are worried about AI taking over the world. And um, as an originally an energy lawyer and as an energy guy, um, AI can't take over the world without electricity. And so what does that mean from a very, 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 very 50,000 foot perspective? It means don't let AI control our grid and don't let AI be able to generate electricity on its own. And then we can always pull the plug if there's a problem. Now that's way out there. So what does that mean? That means maybe don't let AI be in a physical form. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I'm sort of joking, but not completely. At the, at the end of the day, I think it's a difficult question. I think uh, for lawyers, it's less of a concern because we already have an ethical duty for whatever is provided to a court to be accurate, to be fact-checked. This is why a lawyer gets in trouble if he cites a case that doesn't exist, right? So there's already some regulation of lawyers because we have duties of candor, et cetera, with the courts. I think the bigger problem will be sort of social media use, uh, those kinds of things, because there's a lot of tools out there right now that are basically writing comments on posts or writing posts on social media. And then we could have this big weird circle where AI is writing comments and writing content on blogs and everything. And then that content is getting fed back into the AI. And it'll be interesting to see what happens because if AI is relying on AI content, you know, where are we going to be? Yeah, you know, The Economist had a cover recently. It, it, it had a picture of one of those buttons that normally says, I voted, and it says, AI voted. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, right. If you were, yeah. you know, the last election, there was a lot of worries about, you know, other countries buying social media ads and, and stuff. And now 
you could just hook up AI to buy social media ads and do the posts and everything. Exactly. So what do you think your biggest challenge is over the next year? Um, in, in law or in my, uh, we'll go with, we'll go with law. We're go, yeah. we'll go with the, uh, Perkins GUI. Yeah. I mean, um, I think honestly law from what I have seen and I have one of my startups is a, is a, actually two of them are legal focused. Uh, lawyers are really slow at adopting tech really slow compared to other industries. So I don't actually think there's going to be much difference over the next year, two years, even three years. I think it's going to be a little bit slower. It usually is uh, than what people say. Now, does that mean we should ignore it? No. But um, so, you know, over the next year, I'm not too worried about AI. I'm not too worried about, you know, I just want to sort of keep doing what I'm doing. I'm enjoying my practice. I want to win all my cases, obviously. Uh, and then, you know, on the, uh, I'm always on the startup side. I'm always building, build, 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 pushing. A, it's a, one of my investors has a great saying, a startup is like pushing a boulder up a hill with a string. Uh, and I do feel like that sometimes. So I would say the biggest challenge in the next year is to just sort of keep progress on everything I'm working on the legal mentor network, my law practice and my companies and just keep pushing forward. You got to just keep working at it. Awesome. And, and, uh, switching to advice, uh, what advice do you have for a new founder of a technology company right now? I mean, uh, it's it said a lot, but it really is true. It's like 1% idea and 99% execution and work. And so what I would say is the idea you think is going to work is almost definitely not going to work. The best traits of a founder that I've seen are being able to adjust to market conditions, to what you're seeing on the ground with your product, um, and be nimble, and then keep working at it. Just keep taking the next step. Even if you don't know where you're going, you'll go somewhere if you keep taking steps forward. Yeah, that's great advice. So we're going to switch to, to uh, our last section, which is uh, called underrated or overrated. So I'll give you a handful of things and you can tell me whether you think they're underrated or overrated and then they just give me a brief answer why. So I'm going to start with the Kentucky Derby. Underrated or overrated? Underrated. It's, uh, I, you know, and the reason I say that is just because it should be more popular than it is. I think the actual live event is amazing. Incredible. 150,000 people. Uh, really, really fun. Um, but I think horse racing is sort of on the decline nationwide. Um, and some of that's due to, you know, horse safety issues and other things that are legitimate. Um, but it's a great sport. It's been a sport for a hundred, you know, since the late 1800s at least. So, uh, I'd say underrated. Living in Madison, Wisconsin, underrated or overrated? Uh, underrated. I think I like to describe Madison as a top 10 place to live, but not top five. And the reason is there's no ocean or mountains, but otherwise, uh, it's 
pretty amazing. Obviously, it's cold too. Some people don't like that, um, but I find that your body adjusts, and as long as there's enough stuff to do outside, um, or if you really hate the winter, just go somewhere else in the winter. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, overrated or underrated? I feel like I'd be shot if I said she was overrated, uh, but I also don't think she could be underrated because I don't know of any other Supreme Court justices that have bumper stickers all over the place. So I'm going to go with uh, perfectly rated. Berkeley's chances against Stanford this year. Underrated. Berkeley's won two in a row. I mean, Cal has run two in a row. And now Cal's in my favorite conference, the ACC. So I have to root for them, not just because I'm an alum. Perfect. Cheese curds, underrated or overrated? I would say not fried cheese curds are way overrated. However, you put those things in a fryer and uh, serve them up. Fried cheese curds are underrated. You couldn't possibly rate those high enough. Legal podcasts, underrated or overrated? I don't know if they are rated. Are they rated? Uh, I guess I'm going to go underrated because I uh, I don't think they've uh, gotten enough momentum to be overrated yet. E-signatures, underrated or overrated? <sighs> I think I'm going to say underrated. I love e-signatures. I'm so glad I don't have to sign in real ink and mail it in starbucks underrated or overrated underrated i live on starbucks yep like most lawyers uh the firm john grisham's legal thriller underrated or overrated Ooh, i'm gonna say slightly overrated only because it has gotten so much attention and there's other Really amazing legal books, including written by John Grisham. The LSAT, underrated or overrated? Uh, overrated. The LSAT is terrible. There's nothing good about the LSAT. Nobody likes the LSAT. I don't think it actually ju is very particularly good at measuring uh, whether somebody's going to be good at law. But you got to have some test. So... Pro bono work, underrated or overrated? Underrated. Um, I do a lot of pro bono work, um, and I've found at law firms that one of the best parts of working at a law firm is, A, they encourage you to do pro bono work, but then, B, you actually have quite a bit of say over what kind of pro bono work you want to do. And so I'm into land conservation. That's really my you know, what drives me. And so I've been able to do a whole bunch of pro bono work uh, focused on conserving land or fighting um, the state when they want to put like high impact uses in state parks. So underrated. Skiing in Vermont, underrated or overrated? I'm a big wuss. So I, and I'm from Kentucky, so I don't ski. Uh, I've never understood wanting to throw myself down a mountain really fast. Um, however, I did just last two years ago for the first time cross country ski and, uh, wish I'd done that sooner. I've been in Madison for 17 years and I just found cross country skiing and that is fun. It's great exercise and it, you know, it is what you make it. So it doesn't have to be hurl yourself down a mountain, uh, on, you know, 
skis. Moot court, underrated or overrated? <sighs> overrated. I was never a big fan of doing the moot court. And, and I'm not a huge fan of doing moots before oral arguments, although they are, they, they can be helpful, but they can also be really expensive for clients when you're like, Hey, I'm going to have five lawyers moot me for an argument that can get pricey. So I'm going to say under or overrated. And finally, the movie, my cousin Vinny with Joe Pesci underrated or overrated underrated best movie of all time. Wow. That's awesome. Well, we've been speaking with Brian Potts, partner at Perkins Cooey, founder times four, including founder of the Legal Mentor Network. And in the show notes, you can find a whole bunch of stuff we talked about if you want to remember how to get to Jasper AI or whatever. So, Brian, thank you for coming on the show. It's been great to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. You were listening to the State Podcast. You can listen anywhere you listen to podcasts. For example, Apple Podcasts. Please like, subscribe, and comment. And you can also find us on stayblog.substack.com. Thanks. I can't do that.